Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. All right, today we're going to pick up part three of Freemasonry and the Crusades, starting off with the Assassins. The Ishmaela, or Ismailites, or as they are more commonly called the Assassins, from their supposed use of the herb hashish to produce a temporary madness, was during the Crusades one of the most powerful tribes of Syria, although their population is now but small. The sect was founded about the end of the 11th century in Persia by Hassan Sabah, from Persia, where they are said to have received many of the doctrines of the philosophical sect of the Sophies, they moved to Asia Minor and settled in Syria, to the south of Mount Lebanon. Their chief was called Sheikh El-Jeber, literally translated the Old Man of the Mountain, a name familiar to the readers of the Voyages of Sinbad. Higgins, who when he had a theory to uphold, became erratic upon the subject in language, translates it in his Anacalypsis as the Sage of the Kabbalah or Traditions, but the plain Arabic words admit of no such meaning. The too ready belief and dark ignorance of the Middle Ages gave to the sect of the assassins the character of being murderers by habit, a historical error that has been kept alive in our language by the meaning given to the word assassin. This untruth has been exploded by the researches of modern scholars who now class them as a philosophical sect whose doctrines and instructions were secret. Of the Sophies, from whom the Ishmaelay or assassins derive their doctrine, it will be necessary soon to speak. Von Hammer Pergstahl, who wrote a history of the assassins, sought to trace a close connection between them and the Templars. He has shown himself rather as having a bias than as being a fair critic. But the sophistry of his conclusions does not affect the accuracy of his historical statements. Subsequent writers have therefore, in their accounts of this sect, borrowed largely from the pages of Von Hammer Pergstahl. The assassins were a secret society of having a religion and religious instructions which they imparted only to those of their tribe who had gone through a set form of initiation. According to von Hammer Pergstahl, that system of initiation was divided into three degrees. They provided oaths of secrecy and of faithful obedience and had modes of mutual recognition, thus resembling in many respects other secret societies which have at all times existed. He says that they were governed by a grand master and had regulations and a religious code of laws, in all of which he supposes that he has found a close resemblance to the Templars. Their religious views he states to have been as follows. Externally, they practiced the duties of Islamism, although they internally renounced them. They believe in the divinity of Ali, in uncreated light as the principle of all created things, and in Sheikh Ras ed Dia the Grand Prior of the Order in Syria, and contemporary with the Grand Master Hassam II, as the last representative of the deity on earth. The Reverend Mr. Lyde, who traveled among the remains of the sect in 1852, says that they professed to believe in all the prophets, but had a chief respect for Muhammad and his son-in-law Ali, and he speaks of their secret prayers and rites as being too disgusting to be mentioned. The Templars entered at various times during the Crusades into friendly arrangements and treaty agreements with the Assassins, in whose territory several of the fortresses of the Knights were built. 
We may therefore readily believe that at those periods, when war was not raging, there might have been a mutual exchange of courtesies, of visits, and of conferences. The assassins were by no means unfitted to give some elements of knowledge to their knightly neighbors. The chivalry of that age was not noted for learning, and knew little more than the use of weapons, while the Syrian infidels had brought from Persia a large share of the mental training of the Sophies. Von Hammerpergstahl, whose testimony is given in the face of his personal dislike, admits that they produced many treatises on mathematics and law, and he confesses that Hassan, the founder of the sect, possessed a deep knowledge of philosophy and of the pure sciences. We cannot therefore deny the probability that in the frequent meetings with this studious as well as warlike tribe, the Templars may have got some of those doctrines and secret usages peculiar to the order on its return from Palestine, and which, mistaken and misused by their enemies, formed the basis of those charges which led the attack upon and finally to the crushing of Knight Templarism. Godfrey Higgins, whose curious speculations are weakly controlled, finds a close connection between the Freemasons and the Assassins through the Templars. It is very certain, he says, that the Ishmaelians, or Society of Assassins, is a Mohammedan sect, that it was at once both a military and religious association, like the Templars and Teutonic Knights, and that like the Jesuits, it had its members scattered over extensive countries. It was a link that connected ancient and modern Freemasonry. Later on, he claims that the Templars were nothing but one branch of Freemasons. And so he goes on speculating that Templarism and Ishmaelism were the same, and that Freemasonry sprung from them both, or rather from the latter through the former. But as Higgins has advanced several other theories on the origin of Freemasonry, we may let the present one pass. We may be prepared, however, to admit that the Templars possibly to some extent changed their secret doctrines under the influence of their friendly conferences with the Assassins. We can do this without recognizing the further claim that the Templars exercised a similar influence over the Freemasons. We have said that the Assassins are supposed to have derived their doctrines from the sect of the Sophies in Persia. Indeed, the Sophies appear to have been the common origin of all the secret societies of Syria, which will account for their general likeness to each other. In any inquiry, therefore, into the probable or possible connection of Templarism with these societies, Sophism or the doctrine of the Sophies will form an interesting field for study. The sect of the Sophies started in Persia and extended over other countries of the East. The name is generally supposed to be derived from the Greek Sophia, wisdom, and they bore also the name of Philosoph, which will easily suggest the word philosopher. Dr. Herbalot, however, traces the name from the Persian Sauf or Sof wool, because, as he said, the ancient Sophies dressed in woolen garments. The former derivation is, however, the most likely. Sir John Malcolm, who has given a very good account of them in his History of Persia, says that among them may be counted some of the wisest men of Persia and the East. The Mohammedan Sophies, he says, have tried to connect their mystic faith with the doctrine of the prophet in a manner that would be better shown from a reading of von Hammer Pergstahl. That the Gnostic heresy was spread through the system of Sophism is very evident, and at the same time there appears to have been some connection in the ideas with the school of Pythagoras. The object of all search is to find truth, and the labors of the initiate are in a symbolic way directed to its discovery. Sophism has a system of initiation divided into four degrees. In the first, or preparatory degree, the novice is required to observe the rites of the popular religion in its ordinary meaning. In the second degree, called the Pale of Sophism, he exchanges these exoteric or outer rites for a spiritual and secret faith. The third degree is called Wisdom, 
and in this the initiate is supposed to be given more than human knowledge and to become equal with the angels. The fourth and last degree is called truth, which the candidate is now supposed to have reached and to have become united with God. Sir William James has summed up their doctrines, so far as they have been made known, in his collected works as follows. Nothing exists absolutely but God. The human soul is but an outflow from his essence, and though for a time separated from its divine source, will in the end be united with it. From this union, the highest happiness will result, and therefore that the chief good of man in this world consists in as perfect a union with the eternal spirit as the burden of the flesh will permit. Von Hammer Pergstahl's history of the rise, the progress, and the nature of Sophism is more minute, more accurate, and therefore more worthwhile than that of many other writers. In accepting it for the reader, we shall not hesitate to use concisely the language of Sloane, the author of the New Curiosities of Literature. The German historian of the Assassins says that a certain house of wisdom was formed in Cairo at the end of the 10th century by the Sultan, which had thus arisen. Under Maimum, the seventh Abbasid Caliph, a certain Abdallah established a secret society and divided his doctrines into seven degrees, after the system of Pythagoras and the Ionian schools. The last degree taught the vanity of all religion and the indifference of actions, which are visited by neither future profit nor penalty. He sent missionaries abroad to enlist disciples and to initiate them in the different degrees, according to their ability. Karmoth, one of his followers, improved this system in a short time. He taught that the Koran was to be used as allegories. By adopting a system of symbolism, he made arbitrary explanations of all the precepts of that book. Prayer, for instance, meant only obedience to a mysterious imam, whom the Ishmaelay said that they were engaged in seeking, and the order for almsgiving was explained as the duty of paying him tithes or taxes. Fasting was only silence in respect to the secrets of the sect. The more violent followers of Karmath sought to take the throne and control the religion of Persia. With this intent, they made war upon the caliphs, but were defeated and destroyed. The wiser portion, under the general name of Ishmaelites, continued to work in secret and finally succeeded in placing one of their sect upon the throne. In course of time, they erected a large building, which they called the House of Wisdom, and furnished it with professors, attendants, and books and mathematical instruments. Men and women were admitted to the enjoyment of these treasures, and scientific and philosophical discussions took place. It was a public institution, but the secret order of the Sophies, under whose control it was kept up, had their mysteries which could only be obtained by an initiation extending through nine degrees. While Sophism has by most writers been believed to be a religio-philosophical sect, von Hammer-Pergstahl thinks that it was political, and that its principal object was to overthrow the House of Abbas in favor of the Fatimites, which could only be done by overthrowing the national religion. The government at length interfered, and the work of the society was stopped. In about a year, it renewed labors and started a new house of wisdom, extending its influence abroad. Many of the disciples of Sophism passed over into Syria about the close of the 10th century, and there established those secret societies which in the course of the Crusades came into contact, sometimes on the field of battle, and sometimes in friendly conferences during temporary truces with the Crusaders, but especially with the Knights Templar. The principal of these societies were the Ishmaelay or Assassins, and the Druses, both of whom have been described. There were other societies in Syria, resembling those in doctrine and ceremonies. For some especial reasons not now known, these had left the main body which appears to have been the assassins. 
Such were the Ansari, who were the followers of that Karmoth we have mentioned, who have seceded at an early period on the coast in the plain of Laodicea, now Ladiki. From them arose another sect, called the Nuceria, from the name of their founder, Nucer. They settled to the north of Mount Lebanon, along the low range of mountains extending from Antioch to Tripoli, and from the Mediterranean to Hums, where their descendants still remain. From their frequent meetings with these various secret societies, but especially with the assassins, that von Hammer, Pergstahl, and Higgins, following claims credited to Ramsey, have supposed that the Templars derived their secret doctrines and, carrying them to Europe, gave them to the Freemasons. A fair statement would be that von Hammer, Pergstahl, and Higgins believed these Syrian societies to be Masonic, and that they taught the principles of the institution to the Templars, who were thus the founders of Freemasonry in Europe. There is not the slightest historical evidence for such a theory. When we come to examine the authentic history of the origin of Freemasonry, it will be seen how such a claim is entirely without support. That the Templars did have frequent meetings with those secret societies, that they received the knowledge of their doctrines, and that these did have a considerable influence upon the lives of many of their members, and perhaps in making some secret changes of their order, is a claim that cannot be denied or doubted. There are abundant evidences in history of such meetings and exchanges, and we must admit that it is a probable theory that the Knights were to some extent impressed with the doctrines of Sophism practiced by these sects. We may admit, then, that the Templars got some philosophical ideas more liberal than their own from these Syrian secret philosophers who were more learned than they themselves. The next question will be as to what influence the Templars exerted upon the people of Europe on their return, and in what direction and to what ends this influence was exerted. Before entering upon this subject, we may as well notice one important fact. Of the three orders of knighthood who showed their powers in Palestine and Syria during the two centuries of the Crusades, the Hospitallers, the Teutonic Knights, and the Templars, it is admitted that the Templars were more closely acquainted with the Ishmaelay or Assassins than either of the others. Moreover, while the admission to membership in the Hospitaller and Teutonic orders was open and public, the Templars alone had a secret initiation. They held their meetings in houses guarded by the of strangers. At what time the Templars adopted this secret form of initiation is not known. The rule provided for the government by St. Bernard at the period of their organization makes no mention of it. Probably there was no such secret initiation practice for many years after their order was founded. This question naturally suggests itself. Did the Templars borrow the idea and impart the form of their initiation from the assassins among whom such a system existed? Or, if they got these from some other source, were they subjected at a later period of their career, but long before they left Palestine, to changes derived from their intercourse with the secret societies of Syria? These are questions not to be historically solved. We must rest for any answer on mere guesses. Yet the facts of the Templars being of the three orders the only secret one, and of their intercourse with the assassins who were also a secret order, are worthy of note. Some light may be thrown upon this subject by a study of the charges, mainly false, but with certain elements of truth, urged against the order when it was destroyed. Let us now consider the theory that makes the Templars the founders of the Order of Freemasonry, after the return of the Knights to Europe. Rejecting this theory as wholly without serious standing in fact, it will, however, be necessary to inquire what were the real influences exerted upon Europe by the Knights. True, we must remember that if any influence at all was exercised upon the people of Europe, the greater part must be credited to the Templars. 
of the three orders, the Hospitallers, when they left Palestine, went directly to the Isle of Rhodes, where they remained for 200 years. Years. Then, removing to Malta, they continued in that island until the decline of their order in the closing years of the 18th century. The Teutonic Knights betook themselves to the uncivilized parts of Germany and renewed their war work by crusades against the heathens of that country. The Templars alone distributed themselves in the different kingdoms and cities of the continent and became familiar with the people who lived around the preceptories. They alone came in contact with the inhabitants, and they alone could have exercised any influence upon the popular mind or taste. A generally received opinion of the most able architects has been that the Templars exerted a healthy influence upon the architecture of the Middle Ages. Thus, Sir Christopher Wren says that the Holy Wars gave the Christians who had been there an idea of the Saracens' works, which were afterward imitated by them in their churches, and they refined upon it every day as they proceeded in the building. But the most positive opinion of the influence of the Crusaders upon the architecture of Europe was given in 1836 by Westmacott, a noted artist of England. In the course of a series of lectures before the Royal Academy, he thus spoke of the causes of the revival of the arts. There were, he said, two principal causes which tended materially to assist the restoration of literature and the arts in England and in other countries of Europe. These were the Crusades and the extension of or the establishment of the Freemasons' institution in the north and west of Europe. The adventurers who returned from the Holy Land brought back some ideas of various improvements, particularly in architecture, and along with these a strong desire to erect castellated, ecclesiastical, and palatial edifices to display the taste that they had acquired, and in less than a century from the First Crusade, above 600 buildings of the above description had been erected in southern and western Europe. This taste, he held, was spread into almost all countries by the establishment of the fraternity of Freemasons, who, it appears, had under some peculiar form of brotherhood, existed for an immemorial period in Syria and other parts of the East, whence some bands of them migrated to Europe, and after a time a great efflux of these men, Italian, German, French, Spanish, etc., had spread themselves in communities through all civilized Europe. And in all countries where they settled, we find the same style of architecture from that period, but differing in some points of treatment as suited the climate. The latter part of this statement requires proof. We doubt that there is any historical evidence of the coming into Europe of men of the Syrian secret fraternities during or after the Crusades, nor is there any likelihood that such visits could have occurred. But the historical testimonies are very strong that the literature and arts of Europe, and especially its architecture, were much advanced by the influence of the returning crusaders. Their own knowledge had been enlarged and their taste improved by their contact with the nations of the East. Such a topic belongs, however, to the historical rather than to the legendary aspects of Freemasonry, and in the course of this work receives our attention. At present, we must limit ourselves to the consideration of the theory that traditionally connects the Crusaders, and especially the Knights Templar, with the founding of the Masonic Institution through their meetings with the secret societies of Syria. The inventor of the theory that Freemasonry was instituted in the Holy Land by the Crusaders, and by them on their return introduced into Europe, was the Chevalier Michael Ramsey, to whom Freemasonry usually credits, whatever may be the value of the debt, the system of high degrees and the making of rights. Ramsay was the Grand Orator and delivered a discourse before the Grand Lodge of France in the year 1737, in which he thus traces the origin of Freemasonry, throwing aside as fables all theories which trace the foundation of the order to the patriarchs, to Enoch, Noah, or Solomon, he finds its origin in the time of the Crusades. In the time, he says, of the Holy Wars in Palestine, 
Many princes, nobles, and citizens associated themselves together and entered into vows to re-establish Christian temples in the Holy Land, and engaged themselves by an oath to employ their talents and their fortunes in restoring architecture to its primitive condition. They adopted signs and symbolic words derived from religion by which they might distinguish themselves from the infidels and recognize each other in the midst of Saracens. They communicated these words only to those who had previously sworn a solemn oath, often taken at the altar, that they would not reveal them. Sometime later, this order was united with that of the Knights of St. John of Jerusalem, for which reason in all countries our lodges are called Lodges of St. John. This union of the two orders was made in imitation of the conduct of the Israelites at the building of the Second Temple, when they held the trowel in one hand and the sword in the other. Our order must not, therefore, be regarded as a renewal of the Bacchanalian orgies and as a source of senseless dissipation, of unbridled libertism, and of scandalous intemperance, but as a moral order instituted by our ancestors in the Holy Land to recall the recollection of the most sublime truths in the midst of the innocent pleasures of society. The kings, princes, and nobles, when they returned from Palestine into their native dominions, established lodges. At the time of the last crusade, several lodges had already been erected in Germany, Italy, Spain, France, and from the last in Scotland, in consequence of the intimate relations which existed between those two countries. James Lord Stuart of Scotland was the Grand Master of a lodge established at Kilwinning in the west of Scotland in the year 1236, a short time after the death of Alexander III, King of Scotland, and a year before John Balliol ascended the throne. This Scottish lord received the earls of Gloucester and Ulster, English and Irish noblemen, as masons into his lodge. By degrees, our lodges, our festivals, and solemnities were neglected in most of the countries in which they had been established. Hence the silence of the historians of all nations, except Great Britain, on the subject of our order. It was preserved, however, in all its splendor by the Scotch, to whom for several centuries the kings of France had entrusted the guardianship of their person. After the lamentable reverses of the Crusades, the destruction of the Christian armies, and the triumph of Bendekar, the Sultan of Egypt in 1263, during the Eighth and Ninth Crusades, the great Prince Edward, son of Henry III, King of England, seeing that there would be no security for the brethren in the Holy Land when the Christians should have retired, led them away, and thus a colony of the fraternity was established in England. As this prince was endowed with all the qualities of mind and heart which constitute the hero, he loved the fine arts and declared himself the protector of our order. He granted it several privileges and franchises, and ever since the members of the confraternity have assumed the name of Freemasons. From this time, Great Britain became the seat of our sciences, the conservatrix of our laws, and the depository of our secrets. The religious dissensions which so fatally pervaded and rent all Europe during the 16th century caused our order to degenerate from the grandeur and nobility of its origin. Several of our rites and usages, which were opposed to the prejudices of the times, were changed, disguised, or retrenched. Thus it is that several of our brethren have, like the ancient Jews, forgotten the spirit of our laws and preserved only the letter and the outer covering. But from the British islands, the ancient science is now beginning to pass into France. Such was the theory of Ramsey, the principal points of which it is claimed for him he had already put into the rite of six degrees which bears his name. This rite might be called the mother of all the rites which followed it and which in a few years covered the continent with a web of high degrees and of Masonic systems. All of these were based on the theory that Freemasonry was invented during the Crusades and the great dogma of which, boldly stated by the Baron von Hund in his rite of strict observance, was that every Freemason was a Templar.
Ramsey rejects all the legends which ascribe Freemasonry to the patriarchs or to the ancient mysteries, and thus he does not admit any connection with an operative association. He looks to chivalry alone for the true source of the fraternity. He adopts the method of writing Masonic history previously pursued by Anderson. This was unfortunately followed by other writers of the 18th century and has not altogether been abandoned at this present day. Ramsey makes his claims boldly, draws without limit upon his imagination, presents guesses in the place of facts, and shows no authority for anything that he advances. As Mossdorf says, since he cites no authority, we are not bound to believe him on his simple word. Ramsey's influence, however, as a man of ability, had its weight. The theory of the origin of Freemasonry among the Crusaders continued to be taught in some form or another by later writers. It was infused by the system makers into most of the rites that were afterwards founded. Indeed, it may be said that all of the rites now existing, the English and American, are the only ones in which some feature of this Templar theory may not be noted. Hutchinson's theory varied somewhat from that of Ramsey. While recognizing the influence of the Crusades upon Freemasonry, he is inclined to suppose that it was carried there by the Crusaders rather than that it was brought back by them to the Europe. Mentioning the organization of the Crusades by Peter the Hermit and the outpouring from Europe into Palestine of tens of thousands of saints, devotees, and enthusiasts to waste their blood and treasure in a barren and unprofitable adventure, he goes on to say that it was deemed necessary that those who took up the sign of the cross in this enterprise should form themselves into such societies as might secure them from spies and treacheries, and that each might know his companion and fellow laborer by dark as well as by day. As it was with Jephthah's army at the passes of the Jordan, so also was it requisite in these expeditions that certain signs, signals, watchwords, or passwords should be known amongst them, for the armies consisted of various nations and various languages. No project or device, he thinks, could answer the purpose of the Crusaders better than those of Freemasonry. The maxims and ceremonials attending the Master's Order had been previously established and were material necessary on that expedition. For as the Mohammedans were also worshippers of the deity, and as the enterprisers were seeking a country where the Freemasons were in the time of Solomon called into an association, and where some remains would certainly be found of the mysteries and wisdom of the ancients and of our predecessors, such degrees of Freemasonry, as extended only to their being servants of the God of nature, would not have distinguished them from those they had to encounter, had they not assumed the symbols of the Christian faith." The theory of Hutchinson is then that while there was some Freemasonry in Palestine before the coming of the Crusades, it was only that earlier stage which he had already described as belonging to the apprentice's degree, and which was what both he and Oliver have called patriarchal masonry. The higher stage represented by the master's degree was of course unknown to the Saracens as it was of Christian origin. The possession of this degree only could form any distinct mark between the Crusaders and their Muslim foes. This degree, therefore, he thinks, was taken into Palestine as a war measure to supply the Christians with signs and words which would be, to them, a means of protection. The full force of the language bears only this meaning, that Freemasonry was used by the Crusaders not for purposes of peace, but for those of war. Such a sentiment is opposed to the true spirit of the institution. Nothing but a blind following of a pet theory could have led so good a Freemason as Hutchinson to adopt or to advance such an opinion. Parting company with Ramsey, who had credited the origin of Freemasonry to the knights and nobles of the Crusades, Hutchinson says the task of introducing it into Palestine belonged to the religious and not the military element of these expeditions. All the learning of Europe in those times, he continues, was possessed by the religious. They had acquired the wisdom of the ancients and the original knowledge which was in the beginning and now is the truth. 
Many of them had been initiated into the mysteries of Freemasonry. They were the projectors of the Crusades, and, as Solomon in the building of the temple, introduced orders and regulations for the conduct of work, which his wisdom had been enriched with from the sages of antiquity, so that no confusion should happen during its progress, and so that the rank and office of each fellow laborer might be distinguished and ascertained beyond the possibility of doubt. So in like manner, the priest projecting the Crusades, being possessed of the mysteries of Freemasonry, the knowledge of the ancients, and of the universal language which survived the confusion of Shinar, revived the orders and regulations of Solomon, and initiated the legions therein who followed them to the Holy Land, hence that secrecy which attended the Crusades. Hutchinson ends this group of beliefs, heaped one upon another, without the slightest attempt to historically check up a single statement, by claiming that among other evidences which authorize us in the conjecture that Freemasons went to the Holy Wars is the doctrine of that order of Freemasons called the Higher Order that is to say, the advanced degrees, which he says that he was led to believe was of Scottish origin. He probably got this idea from the theory of Ramsey. Be that as it may, he thinks it conclusively proved that the Freemasons were crusaders, a finding of fact that it would be difficult to draw by any known rules of logic. The fact, if it be admitted, that these further degrees were invented in Scotland by no means proves that the Freemasons who had them went to the Crusades. It is impossible, indeed, to find any natural link or relation between the two things. However, the legend referring to the founding in Scotland of a system of Freemasonry at the time of the crushing of the Order and the burning of Jacques de Molay belongs to another portion of the legendary history of Freemasonry, and we shall therefore deal with it in a separate chapter. Von Hammerpergstahl shows to what shifts for arguments those are reduced who pretend that the institution of Freemasonry was derived at the Crusades by the Knights Templar from the secret societies of the East. He says, as a proof of truth of this theory, which indeed he makes as a charge against the Templars, that their secret maxims, particularly insofar as they relate to the giving up of positive religion and the spreading of their power by the gain of castles and strong places, seem to have been the same as those of the Order of the Assassins. The similarity also of the white dress and red ribbon of the assassins with the white mantle and red cross of the Templars, he thinks is certainly remarkable. Hence, he assumes that as the assassins were a branch of the Ishmaeli, whom he calls the Illuminati of the East, and as the former was a secret society of revolutionary kind, which is a feature that he also credits to the Freemasons, he takes it for granted that the assassins supplied the Templars with those ideas of organization and doctrine out of which they created the system of Freemasonry that they afterward brought to Europe. A series of arguments like this is scarcely worthy of a serious reply. That the Templars ever gave up the precepts of positive religion, either at that early period of their career or at any later time, is a mere guess, based on the charges made by the malice of a wicked king and a still more vicious pope. The making of forts and castles for their protection by both the Templars and the Assassins arose from the military instinct which teaches all armies to provide the means of defense when in the presence of an enemy. And lastly, the argument drawn from the similarity of the costumes of both orders is so childish as to require no other answer than that as the mantle and cross of the Templars were bestowed upon them, the former by Pope Honorus and the later by Pope Eugenius, therefore they could not have been indebted to the assassins for it either. The best reply to the slanders of von Hammer-Pergstahl is the fact that to sustain his views he was obliged to depend on such poverty of argument. We may fairly accept as historically true the fact that the Templars, or perhaps we ought to say the architects and builders who accompanied them and were engaged in the construction of their forts and castles in the Holy Land, the remains of some of which still exist, brought with them to Europe some new views of Saracenic building art. 
These they very probably taught to the guilds of Freemasons already existing in Europe. While we may believe so much, at least yet we may dismiss the further consideration of that subject as having little or nothing to do with the question of how much Freemasonry, as a secret society, was indebted for its origin to Templarism. Of the direct connection of the Templars with Freemasonry at the time of the Crusades, there are only two propositions that have been maintained. One is that the Templars carried Freemasonry with them to Palestine and there used it for the defense against their enemies, the Saracens. This theory has not the slightest evidence. No historian living in the time of the Crusades makes any mention of such a fact. Before we can even discuss it as something worthy of study, we must search for the missing proof that in the 11th and 12th centuries, Freemasonry was anything more than an operative institution. Was it likely that any crusaders of influence, such as nobles and knights, were members of such a body? As a mere guess, it wants every element of likelihood. Hutchinson, the most prominent writer who maintains the theory, has evidently mixed up the crusaders of the 11th and 12th centuries who fought in Palestine with the Templars who are said to have fled to Scotland in the 14th century and to have there invented certain advanced degrees. This seeming confusion of dates gives an absurd feature to the claim of Hutchinson. Another form was long ago given to this theory by a writer in the Freemasons magazine, which has the air of greater likelihood at least. The theory that he has advanced will be best given in his own language. The traveling bodies of Freemasons, who existed in Europe at the time of the Crusades, consisted of brethren well-skilled in every branch of knowledge. Among their ranks were many learned ecclesiastics, whose names survived to the present day in the magnificent edifices which they assisted to erect. The Knights of the Temple, themselves a body of military monks, partaking both of the character of soldiers and priests, preserved in their order a rank exclusively clerical, the individuals belonging to which took no part in warfare, who were skilled in letters and devoted themselves to the civil and religious affairs of the order. They were the historians of the period, and we know that all the learning of the time was in their keeping in common with the other ecclesiastics of the time. From the best information we are possessed of regarding the order, we believe there can be little doubt that these learned clerks introduced the whole fabric of craft masonry into the body of the Templars, and that not only was the speculative branch of the science by them incorporated with the laws and organization of the Knights, but to their operative skill were the Templars indebted for their triumphs in architecture and fortification. And it is worthy of remark that in the records of the order we find no mention of individual architects or builders. We may therefore not unfairly draw the inference that the whole body were made participators in the knowledge and mysteries of the craft. To this theory, there is the same objection that has been already made to the other, that it is wholly unsupported by historical authority, and that it is a mere group of bold guesses by a fanciful mind. Strange indeed is the reasoning which infers that all the Templars were builders, because there is no mention of such a class in the records of the order. That silence would rather indicate that among the knights no such class existed. The knights probably employed architects and builders who may have belonged to the guilds of traveling Freemasons before they went to Palestine, but there's no evidence, and it is by no means likely that they would engage in anything more than the duties of their profession, or that there would be on the part of the knights devoted to a work of war any tendency to take share in their peaceful association. The second theory is that the Templars derived their secret doctrines and ceremonies from the sect of the Assassins or from the Druses of Mount Lebanon, and that on their return to Europe they organized the Fraternity of Freemasons. This theory is the direct opposite of the former one. It too has neither history to show its truth as a statement nor probability to support it as a surmise. 
the doctrine of a German writer, Adler, he advanced in his book De Drusis Montes Libani, published in 1786 at Rome, but its foremost friend was von Hammer Pergstall, an active foe of both Templarism and Freemasonry, and who made it the basis of his charges against both institutions. Nevertheless, it has been accepted with his usual excess confidence by Higgins in his work, Anacalypsis. Brewster, in the history of Freemasonry, adopts the same theory. As the Order of the Templars, he says, was originally formed in Syria and existed there for a considerable time, it would be no improbable supposition that they received their Masonic knowledge from the lodges in that quarter. But Brewster, or the author of the work called Lowry's History, had already, with equal powers of quibbling and with a like boldness of estimate, credited the origin of Freemasonry to the ancient mysteries, to the Dionysiac fraternity of artificers, to the Essenes, the Druids, and to Pythagoras. Therefore, we may safely bury his theory of the theory of the Templar's origin in the grave of what ought to be and probably are exploded claims. All these various arguments tend only to show how the bias of pet opinions may warp the judgment of the most learned scholars. On the whole, we will be safe in the belief that whatever may have been the valiant deeds of the Crusaders, and especially of the Templars, in their unsuccessful attempt to rescue the Holy Sepulchre from the infidels, that they were unlikely to divert their attention from that great work to follow up an enterprise so out of touch with the war spirit of their main business as that of setting up a peaceful society of builders. With the Crusades and the Crusaders, Freemasonry had no connection that can be sustained by historical proof or even the showing of great probability. As to the supposed relation of Templarism to the Freemasonry of Scotland, that forms another and an entirely different legend that we must not overlook. A separate chapter is given to it in this work. All right, and that concludes Chapter 28, Freemasonry and the Crusades. That was a long one. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.